Good evening. You are listening to the ENR podcast. It is the 5th of April as we record this. And uh, joining me tonight, I have got Mark. Hey. And Bronwyn. Hello. And we have a special guest with us this evening, uh, Associate Professor Alexander Maxwell from Victoria University who teaches in history. Hello. So how's everybody doing? It's been interesting. I think we've all been sort of um, waiting with bated breath to see if this new um, 14-day protest by United NZ is going to uh, materialize into something interesting. And I think that's the biggest crime of all. It's quite a boring protest. It has been small turnout so far. I mean, I think there was hope that on the weekend that people would turn up because I think the first event was Friday and they might have had about a dozen people at the War Memorial. And on the weekend, I think they might have managed 20 um, at Waitangarua Park. And that that's basically about it. It's really been a damp squib through and through so far. Yes, they seem to have uh, lost all the all their momentum, at least for people turning up for, for in-person protests. Well, I think the big issue is that, you know, you know, you had this big sort of organic protest for whatever ProFest was. And then it seemed that this one, they were trying to, whoever was organizing it, and by all accounts, by the initial website, you know, there was talk of pastors leading, leading it. So it must have been associated with one of the churches. And there seemed to be quite a lot of attempts to control, control the message, control what placards people could bring, control what people could say. And that doesn't make for an organic or even, <laughs> quote unquote, fun protest for people. No, and I wonder if the the fact that they're trying to stretch it out over 14 days has really diluted it because people don't want to commit to 14 days, I would have thought, mm-hmm. of showing up every day for a protest. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I wouldn't anyway. Well, certainly a protest where everyone had to um, provide their like provide their own accommodation. I mean, that was the thing about what was happening on Parliament. There was, in one way or another, there was a camp there and people were providing food throughout the night and a party atmosphere. And this wasn't what was happening. No. And I guess the yeah, the weather is starting to cool and uh, camping outside in the cooler weather wouldn't necessarily be uh, as fun. Mm. And I guess a lot of people don't have their camping gear anymore. No, it all went up on fire. <laughs> I just It is sort of striking how many people came out to the previous protest and it is a big gap from one to the other. I wonder if they feel that they've won now that the mandates and vaccine houses are being wound back. I think it's a real mix. I think some people have been claiming it's a win, but it's surprising how many of them online are saying that this isn't enough and it shouldn't be considered a win, that they need to push even further. The business shouldn't even be allowed to choose to have mandates and we need to get rid of all mandates. Um, And then there's the whole vaccination thing as well. You know, they're not happy that people are being vaccinated. A lot of them think that the vaccine has some kind of nanotech in it or that it's some kind of poison. So, so, yeah, I think it goes a lot further than just the mandates. Yes. Well, we'll see. What, what day are we up to now? It must be is it day, day five. So we're still. Yeah, it's day five. So they're probably just uh, they'll be announcing soon on the website. I think it's nzunite.com. They announce every evening what the next day's events are. And the reason for that is so that the police won't know too far in advance and be able to organize. But. I think that's just another part of the the issue they're having with nobody turning up is that nobody can plan in advance because they have to wait until the last minute. Okay, well let's uh, let's get started on what we were going to talk about. So um, I was I was going to talk about the the Nuremberg NZ site, which is a particularly nasty 
website that has been set up. It's been running, I think, for a few months now. Is that your recollection, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. From what I understand, there was an article that came out today, actually, that said maybe it's been six months that the site's been up, but Mm. I think it only became popular um, when the protest started happening. Uh, So this is a a site that um, looks extremely amateur in its presentation. Um, It looks like it's something from the 1990s. Uh, but it's developed by a guy by the name of Daniel Souter, who I read today is described as a database administrator. So he's not actually a website developer. That shows. <laughs> yeah, it does, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and the the main features of the site are that you can uh, vote for people who essentially you want to be uh, arrested and executed uh, in Nuremberg 2.0 trials here in New Zealand. So there's a bunch of people that have been nominated, um, including the the likes of Susie Wiles um, and a whole bunch of politicians. And the act of being nominated generates an email out to that person to say, hey, you're, you're on this list. And then people can come along to the site and they can vote vote you up or down depending upon how bad your your behavior or uh, actions during the pandemic have been according to their perception uh, so it's pretty nasty stuff really yeah so there's there's two lists actually there's a list of the accused and then there's a list of heroes and it's interesting with the list of the accused that daniel who runs the website says that if somebody drops to the bottom of the rankings if they get enough down votes he will consider removing them. It's not automatic grounds for removal if someone gets down votes and nobody wants to hang them. Apparently, uh, yeah, he still gets to make the final decision. He is judge and jury. <laughs> yes, although I read in that article on the spinoff today that he, he claims to just be the messenger, not the executioner. I think they all do. I think Richard Civil is the same. He was in court yesterday, was it? Um, and he's the same when it, when he says publicly that politicians should be hanged and that he wants to see Jacinda Ardern hanging. He he claims that he's just the messenger, that he's just letting people know what needs to happen, that in no way is he trying to incite violence or suggesting that he wants to see it happen. He's just letting people know <laughs> it's such a weird defense. Yeah. Are, there, uh, are there people trolling this site by you know, putting anti-vax people up and trying to vote for them? Well, there, there is quite a lot of trolling going on on the site because the site is so incompetently built that it allows people to submit things that aren't just people's names for the hero lists or the accused lists. So you get a text box on the website where you can essentially put in anything, including script tags, so uh, once they once they get saved into the database and they're they're redisplayed for everybody, then that script gets gets executed and uh, you can basically do whatever you want. So um, over the weekend, I was having a look at it and um, at, at one point I went to the website and it just came up with a uh, with a page saying "peepoo." And then there was another time where I went there and it uh, immediately redirected to uh, Rick Astley's uh, "Never Going to Give You Up." playing on youtube <laughs> so that one i love that, a bit of fun that that's one i wrote about a month ago when i when i first looked into this and it hadn't happened on this site but another of daniel Souter's site the um sue gray website mm. 
Uh, someone had rickrolled that one by doing something similar. In this case, it was comments. You could put a comment on any article. And again, the input wasn't sanitized. Whatever you wrote would be displayed on the page. And as you say, if it includes a script tag in which you can just put JavaScript that gets executed in someone's browser, it will just faithfully run that. And so far, it's all been very innocuous, right? So it's just been the Rick rolling, a couple of messages, one about an anonymous hacking and one about the pee-pee-poo-poo. Um, but there is serious damage that you can do. You can steal someone's credentials very easily with this using what's called a cross-site scripting attack. So I'm surprised nobody's done that yet, but I imagine it's only a matter of time before it does happen. Yeah, although I imagine that the people that are hacking the site and generally the good people that just want to do it for a joke rather than to actually uh, steal somebody's credentials. Um, uh, yes, probably. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Although let, being honest here, when I poked around the site a few weeks ago, I did find a couple of entry points into uh, lists of emails, just mm. publicly accessible through the browser and through one of those, I did manage to find usernames and passwords that were easy for me to find and start viewing. Um, and it was it was not overly surprising, but it, it became obvious that this guy has no idea what he's doing. No. And, and over the weekend, when I took a look at it, it was obvious that he was basically trying to clean things up, but he hadn't got to the point of actually fixing the, the fundamental flaws in his site that would allow people to hack it in the first place. I wonder whether he just doesn't even know what that problem is, whether that he just doesn't understand what sanitizing the data is all about. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the mail, I mean, if you go and look at the site now, that's still available. Um, there's, a, there's a tab there for viewing the mail. And I found that very interesting in that it essentially gives you access to all the emails that they have sent out to schools and, and to people they've put on their accused lists. Um, and you can go and look and see exactly what that, that email is. And the interesting part of it is it shows you who what the alias was of the person who actually sent the email. And that makes for some interesting reading because there are some names that people who follow this sort of thing might actually recognize in there, such as uh, Amy Bearder, who uh, is one of the Voices for Freedom uh, women uh, founders. Uh, so, uh, so if you register for the site and you start sending out mail from it, it gives you an email address such as amy.beater at nuremberg.nz. Um, so you can go and see uh, how many of those emails that, that she has sent out on the through the site. And, and um, I actually found another name this morning. Um, I saw a few emails that she this other woman had sent out, and I went and looked her up, and it turns out she works uh, as a database administrator for a uh, consultancy company here in Auckland. So I sort of had thoughts about maybe sending a message to that company and uh, saying, hey, do you know that uh, one of your employees is uh, doing this sort of stuff? Please do. Please do. I, I yeah. think this, this kind of dobbing someone in is a worthy cause and uh, definitely worth doing. So for all the um, for all the hacks that happened on this, the I think the best thing that's happened to this website in the last week wasn't even a hack, right? That about a week ago, somebody had the genius idea of adding Daniel Souter, the website's creator, to his own list of the accused, and then just posted publicly about it on Twitter and said, anybody that wants to upvote Daniel, please feel free. And within a few hours, he'd risen to the top of the rankings. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that there's no exploit going on there, right? 
it's just the wisdom of crowds. Uh, and it seemed like it took him a day or more to figure out how to remove himself from his own website in the database. <laughs> oh, that is that is funny. Yeah. And, the, and, and that action, he undermines his own uh, voting system. Hmm. You know, if the public does vote for him to be hung, I mean, yeah. does he need to follow through on that? I don't know. There, there is obviously a very serious side to this. I mean, calling for for people's execution is um, is pr- pretty awful. Um, so the the spinoff article today um, talked about the um, various agencies sort of not really being able to do anything about the site. Um, so it's been raised with the uh, the domain name commission in New Zealand, who um, are responsible for the .nz top level domains, um, and they can't do anything about it. Apparently. Uh, Apparently, calling for the execution of politicians and public figures is, is not doesn't rise to the level of uh, something that they should be concerned about. And the, apparently, the police have been involved. Um, and the only way that uh, the site could be taken down, according to the uh, the hosting company, is if the the police or some other authority tell them that it needs to be taken down. And apparently, that's calling for that's the what they've said, right? Not, yeah. So Vocus have said that, that they need to hear from the police. But at the same time, Vocus's own terms and conditions basically say um, all sorts of criteria under which they are free to deny your service. Mm. And uh, this website fits fairly and squarely in the middle of those conditions about harassment and all sorts. So even though they keep claiming that, you know, they have no jurisdiction, that they can't take it down, it looks like they've written a set of T's and C's that make it very easy for them to take down. So I don't know why they're not. Um, It feels a little bit weird to me. Yeah, I suspect that uh, they would apply those terms and conditions when it suited them, uh, rather than <laughs> rather than when somebody necessarily breached those uh, conditions. Maybe it's a freedom of speech issue where they're just worried that if they do trample on someone's freedom of speech in this way, that that they might lose customers. It might be seen as a precedent. I kind of feel that people who run hosting companies are probably more on the free speech side of the argument. Yeah, well, I mean, I was going back to the point that you're making about the seriousness of, you know, calling for these executions. Um, Another big article that's come out, and also I believe um, one of our co-committee members posted it on the New Zealand Skeptics Facebook page, has been, um, what was her name? Susan Crack, (laughs) who was um, calling herself the sheriff. Deputy Sheriff oh, of New Zealand. Oh, yes. Sandra Crack, yeah, I think. Sandra Crack, yes, yeah. And, right. you know, the idea of these sheriffs who are going to go around and start arresting pe- arresting people and starting off that process. And that's also quite, you know, alarming. Kerry Reedy is another oh, one, yeah. So oh, Kerry right. Reedy has announced that she's the head sheriff and somehow she convinced a justice of the peace to um, stamp a bit of paper proclaiming her head sheriff of New Zealand. Um, but I, although it looked at first like maybe it was a flaky justice of the peace, uh, an article that came out the other day suggested that maybe it's coercion. Maybe JPs are actually being coerced into giving their seal of approval because I think they've got a few sheriffs signed up now, a few people. Rob Thomas is another one. There's there's several in the around the country that think they now have this power that's above the police, um, mm. which is pretty scary. Mm. Yeah, I, I listened to that. Uh, was it Richard Seville? He's He was the guy who was arrested for threatening to to kill Jacinda Ardern. Uh, he he was interviewed today by some uh, pseudo journalist, uh, and he was talking about common law, and and I, th- I think he thinks that he's a sheriff. <laughs> 
Yeah, this sovereign citizen thing is underneath a lot of these ideas about mm. taking vigilante action. They they really think that just by claiming common law and a lodial title of their land, that this basically gives them powers that they absolutely do not have. Yeah. When the, when the police come along, you find out who actually has the real power. <laughs> Although listening the other day to Richard Civil, uh, somebody recorded a phone call with him when the police were at his door. There mm. was like f- at least 45 minutes that he managed to keep the police away just by talking to them. Uh, and I thought the police would have been kind of quicker to get in because it sounded like they wanted his phone. But yet the longer he talked, the more they just stayed outside waiting. I guess I guess we should be thankful we have kind police that don't just go and storm a building straight away. Uh, but it seemed like they gave him more latitude than maybe he deserved. Yeah, that seems to be the case with a lot of these people who end up in uh, court, such as uh, Brian Tamaki, who's is now claiming to be innocent and uh, was allowed out on bail to go and uh, go on holiday somewhere. And what are we going to do about it? <laughs> Run a podcast and <laughs> rant about it in frustration. Complain from our armchairs. No, you're going to submit a complaint, right, about the uh, the woman you found in that database. Yes, I, yes I am. I am. Yes. Nice. Yep. Good old skeptical activism. I like it. Uh, so, Mark, what did you want to talk about? Um, I thought I'd talk a little bit about an article that came out from David Farrier. Um, and for those that don't know David Farrier, he's a great guy. He's uh, He's been very skeptically minded for many years. Um, he's been around various media outlets. Um, he's even made a at least one movie, a documentary called Tickled, which was really enjoyable to watch and very, very weird. Um, But recently he's gone independent and he set up his own website, webworm.co, where he produces independent content and people can subscribe. So I think it's about half the articles you can read without a subscription and the other half are subscribers only. And seems to be working for him. He seems to be making money. Um, And he's focused on some really interesting topics, QAnon and all sorts. Recently, it's been Hillsong Church, but an article he wrote just yesterday, I think it was, was about Arise Church. Um, Have any of you heard of Arise Church before? Well, myself, you and Alexander went to a Christmas service, um, not in 2021, but back in. um, No, it wasn't a Christmas service, but it was around that season. It was around Christmas time back in, say, early 2001, late 2020. So, yes, I totally forgotten, Bronwyn, that you, me and Alexander did visit what, a year and a half ago? Yeah. Alexander, what, what did you think of Arise Church when we visited? Well, my main memory of that day was that we first went to the, the Sikh temple and then went to Arise Church. And they, they made an interesting contrast in my mind because uh, they were similar in so many ways. The service involved asking for submission to a, you know, a wise man or great prophet. They both involved uh, giving you a lot of promises that all sorts of wonderful things are coming your way. And they both involved extensive musical interludes. And, uh, you know, the, the music changed from, from cultural context, but I was struck by how similar they were in their, uh, in their structure. Yeah, interesting perspective. So I've been to a few Arise sermons, uh, meetings, Lots of different stuff, actually, because it turns out that when I first arrived in New Zealand, my wife, who was still a Christian at the time, she joined the church. 
And um, within uh, maybe six months or so, she became one of the life group leaders. So my wife used to run a group um, and she ran this prayer group along with a, there was a young guy that ran it with her. And every week they'd meet in someone's house and they'd pray and sing and all sorts. Um, and so I've, I've been to a few services with my wife. I've been to the leader, John Cameron's birthday party one year, just a small private gathering that I got to sit in on. Um, so yes. I, and I know a, a fair few of the leaders, in the church. In fact, the, I think the last time I went by myself, I was enthusiastically greeted by someone who recognized me and thought that maybe I was coming back into the fold, that I was joining the church seriously and didn't realize that I was just there as a skeptic, which was a little bit awkward. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've seen how this church operates from the life group side, and I've, I've seen that they are very good at making sure that these connections are maintained, that when somebody first comes through the door, uh, people are given responsibility to keep up just talking to them, asking if they're coming to a life group. They have spreadsheets where they track how often people are contacted um, and just try to make sure they keep the momentum up and they keep the pressure on for people to keep coming back again. Because although it's a lot of effort, I think for churches, it can it can be a lost leader. The effort at first, if it turns into a tithe, can be uh, quite a windfall. What What is a life group? So uh, <laughs> there are many names for the same thing, depending on the church, a small group, a life group, a cell group. It's basically like a midweek meeting of a subset of the church. So a church might organize 20 or 30 different small groups of maybe eight or 10 people. Um, and they're kind of based around the suburb that they live in. So it's fairly local for you to get to a one of these groups in midweek. And you might spend an hour or two, maybe have a Meal, some prayer and singing, just uh, fellowship, they'd call it. Uh, so it's, it's just a way to keep that church uh, spirit up during the middle of the week. So it's not just a Sunday thing. And they're very popular in evangelical circles. So, Mark, the fact that your wife was involved in the church, does that mean that you were tithing? No, no, we never were. <laughs> And my <laughs> my children, that. <laughs> yeah, that, that would have been quite painful. I think maybe my wife gave some money every week, but we were certainly not giving 10%. Um, but yeah, my, my children ended up going to the church when they were really young. And the more I learned about what they were being taught, creationism was being pushed to the children. Um, the more uncomfortable I became until I eventually had to say, no, I'm just not happy with my kids going to church anymore, or at least to this church. And it turns out as my wife tried other churches, none of them were great. They were all teaching bad messages to the children. So, <laughs> oh, maybe I should just keep the children at home then. Um, yeah, but this article from David, it focuses on another part of a rise church. And I think a part that I've known about, I've known a couple of people that have been involved, but I just didn't know how bad it was. And that is interns that, uh, I've known a couple of people that worked as interns 
but this article, oh my goodness, they they have so many interns coming in every year. Not only are these interns not paid, but often they're expected to maybe contribute some money in order to get onto the internship. On top of this, it's not like they're even learning anything useful from what I can tell. A lot of it is just set up and tear down um, on a Sunday and other days for church events because they'll have midweek events. So a lot of it is just menial work that people don't want to do when an intern who's convinced that this is what God wants them to do tends to do it quite enthusiastically. And then beyond that, apparently some of the church leaders use these interns if they need a babysitter, for example, or something like that. So it seems like these poor interns, apparently they run ragged. They, they work long hours. They're not paid. They're expected to pay out for conferences and things like this. And they just, they aren't even learning anything useful. I, I would contend that they're learning some important life lessons. They're <laughs> not trusting people like that. Yes. And there's actually, there's a, uh, an Instagram um, account that I, uh, I flicked through yesterday that David Farrier linked to of memes from X arise interns. And I didn't understand everything they were talking about, but I understood enough to tell that there are a lot of jaded people that have come out of that internship program. Sorry, so there, are there are parallels, you think, to the, the Hillsong Church? I think David's been doing a series on just how churches can be pretty awful. Um, I have no idea about whether Hillsong has an internship program. Um, I know that Hillsong and Arise have been connected before. There's a lot of sharing of speakers. Um, they they tend to kind of fly head pastors around internationally. And whenever I, I think it's a good gig, from what I understand, there are um, – what are they called? There, there are different offerings churches have. So Arise might have your standard tithe, and then they will have um, an expansion offering, which they expect you to give money to help them buy buildings. And I think it's a peace offering is the offering that goes for any visiting pastor. Apparently, a pastor can make thousands of dollars on a weekend uh, just from these peace offerings that are donated to them. So it's a it's a lucrative gig. And uh, certainly Hillsong and Arise, when they swap pastors, I think there's good money being made there. But he's looked at other churches like City Impact in Auckland and places like that. And there are there are issues with all of these churches. I mean, Hillsong, it's um, it's sex abuse, which is really horrible. Um, you know, Hill, Hillsong, thankfully, it sounds like from what David said yesterday is falling apart. Um, I really hope that that church fully dissolves because it seems like it wasn't a good place to be. Yeah, I'm sure that they're all uh, sharing business uh, business planning and uh, figuring out how to how to extract the most amount of money out of their their flock. Yeah, and unfortunately for you, Craig, you can't visit Arise because there aren't any in Auckland. Apparently, there's a uh, no, there's no, an agreement. One had, no, one, one had started, I think. That's yeah, it. That but they are. They're talking of opening one, so soon you'll be able to visit an Arise Church. Right. Yes, because I think you I looked them up on, on, on Facebook. Maybe they are just in the process of opening. Well, yeah. no, because the, the Facebook group says Arise Church in Auckland is launching in 2021. Oh, so maybe it's already launched then, or maybe the pandemic mm. had something to say about that. Yeah. Yeah, obviously God didn't give them the, uh, the heads up on their plans. 
No, it didn't. But sadly, when when the pandemic hit, Arise Church organized a series of videos that they put on YouTube. It was I forgot what it was called. One of them I got linked to by someone. And oh, my goodness, it was a functional health specialist who talked about COVID and how to uh, avoid COVID and how to treat yourself with COVID. And it was all about the right vegetables you should be eating. And uh, hot showers were supposed to be useful for COVID. And all the advice was bullshit. It was honestly through and through. It was just nonsense. But this was one of their congregants. And this is what they do a lot of the time is that they promote their congregants and they try and make sure that, you know, the people that come to church can get that business from other people. Like my wife ended up going to uh, a dentist who happened to be a uh, another uh, congregation member at Arise because that was the dentist that was recommended mm-hmm. by the church. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but th- this woman who was the functional medicine specialist, it was it was ridiculous. I ended up basically um, messaging them and saying, hey, do you realize this is a problem and that none of this is true? And the video disappeared within about a day, thankfully. Roman, you put a message. All oh, right. So you oh, found yeah. the Arise. Arise yeah. So yes. it, it, it looks like a on the, it, the website looks a little bit funny because on the bottom of the page, it says 2022 is the year that we will launch Arise in Auckland. And then just above it, it's already saying, hey, you can RSVP at our service location at grid at the grid on 12 Madden Street in Winyard Quarter mm. or Sunday, 10 a.m. To yeah, like 199 and, and, seats remaining, 50 kids. Yes, exactly. Left. Yeah, yeah. Get in, get in quick, or you might yeah, miss yeah. out. It's all the so, business. Hmm. Well, uh, yes, that's uh, certainly a church that we should avoid, and we should uh, keep an eye out for. <laughs> I, I think every church we should avoid, but yes, this one especially. Uh, well, uh, more power to David and his uh, investigations. Absolutely, he's doing an amazing job. Uh, so this week in the newsletter, uh, we had Alexander writing a guest piece talking about the war in Ukraine. Well, it's uh, it's a very disturbing um, development to have a major war in Europe. It's been on my mind a lot. I'm actually feeling a little bit like it's uh, alien abduction because all of my normal research projects have gone out the window and Hmm. I've been, uh, you know, giving lectures and writing editorials for the paper and so forth on this issue. My Facebook feed is filled with um, notes from my colleagues about um, uh, finding fellowships or um, study places for displaced Ukrainian scholars. It's just sort of on my mind a lot. Uh, so I thought I would write something for the Skeptics newsletter with a bit of a, a skeptical angle. So the angle I came up with was um, was to think about it from Putin's point of view. Um, I mean, I think when we think about the events in Ukraine, it's normal that we feel most sympathetic to the Ukrainian victims of Russian aggression. And I you know, don't mean to in any way mitigate that or say that it's not important. But I think when thinking about political violence, the question of perpetrator is more interesting because it's the perpetrator has the choice to perpetrate or not. You know, the, the victim doesn't have the same type of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we look at this from Putin's perspective, if we look at this from the perspective of Putin's ambitions for the Russian state, it seems that you know while this is a you know a terrible thing for Ukraine and Ukrainians, it's also a terrible thing for Russia. It's a terrible thing for Putin's government. So, what was his motive? Why did this happen? Why did he engage in this military adventure? 
And um, the answer I suggested in the article is that he has started to believe his own propaganda. There's been a, a series of essays published on the Kremlin webpage in which Putin sketches out how he sees the Russian-Ukrainian relationship. And it's filled with um, what to me seem to be pretty typical nationalist tropes, uh, you know, the bog standard Russian nationalism. But if you're a, um, you know, if you're a practicing politician, you can't indulge these fantasies about what the national past is like. Uh, you have to understand clearly what's going on in neighboring countries. And it seemed to me that the Russian state has been pushing certain propaganda lines for such a long time. I wonder if they've started to believe their own propaganda and because only under these false propaganda assumptions does this invasion make any sense. So that was the, the, the gist of my piece. So you talked in the piece about, you know, historical borders and boundaries and how maybe the countries were kind of more connected in the past. Um, and it got me wondering if Ukraine is a country where people in Russia can feel like maybe they have a right to it or that there's a close enough connection that there's that bond. Are there any other countries that should be worried at the moment? Are there, are there other countries that might have had a similar bond in the past that Putin might think is justification for uh, helping to clean up the country from Nazis? Well, the, the vision of Russian nationalism that Putin promotes in the peace uh, would apply equally well to Belarus. Uh, but I don't think there's much danger of an invasion of Belarus at present because the current government of Belarus is uh, very pro-Putin and Putin has excellent relations with it. Um, I think that um, Putin's plan or his, his end goal does not require the annexation of Ukraine. I think what he actually wanted was a more pro-Putin, pro-Russian government in Ukraine. The Ukrainian politics has long been you know, fractured and divided. But one of the key divisions in Ukrainian politics is there are some Ukrainians who would like Ukraine to be closer to the European Union and, uh, you know, sort of a pro-Western orientation, if you like. And then there are forces in Ukrainian politics that are sort of Russophile and like to have closer relations with Russia that are maybe nostalgic for the Soviet past and so on and so forth. For a lot of its post-Soviet history, so you know, in the last whatever twenty years, whatever it's been, thirty years, there have been plenty of pro-Russian governments in Ukraine. In Ukraine, and I don't think Putin has any difficulty with that, or you know, that's all fine. That's what Putin would like. Um, so the current government of Ukraine is sort of pro-Western and moving in a Western direction, and this whole idea of oh, you know, we're fighting Nazis in Ukraine. I mean, that's that's the propaganda line against this government that, uh, you know, Putin, I mean, in a, in a sense, it's very normal. I mean, all over the world, if you don't like somebody, you compare them to the Nazis. I mean, <laughs> yes. we saw Ardern got compared to the Nazis. I mean, it's the most normal, banal, you know, maybe we regret this tendency in political rhetoric, but it, it just look at the, how political rhetoric works and you'll see that it's very common. Actually, uh, I, I once made a, a lecture for my German history course where I found, uh, I found I tried to find pictures of every U.S. president since the Second World War depicted as Hitler. And mm -hmm. so could I find Eisenhower as Hitler? Yes, I could. Could I find uh, Kennedy as Hitler? Yes, I could. And I went through and I found every U.S. president except one. And oh. the only U.S. president I couldn't find a picture of that president as Hitler. Yes, maybe yes. Go Carter. on. Oh, no? Carter Taylor, easiest falling downstairs. Really? Reagan. Yeah. 
the well, you there's heaps and heaps of uh, Carter equals <laughs> Nazi stuff from the Islamic wow. Republic of Iran. Yes. Right. If for nothing else. No, it's you're you're thinking of the wrong turn, though. The, the person is George Bush senior. And the reason mm-hmm. I couldn't find it, I'm sure, is just the difficulty of finding George Bush Sr. in a Google search. <laughs> George search, Bush Jr. <laughs> if you search for George Bush Nazi, George Bush Hitler mustache, George Bush, what, what do you get? You get George Bush Jr. Well, what if you say, okay, let's take some major event from George Bush Sr.'s presidency and try to find something related to that? Oh, Gulf War, George Bush, Nazi, George Bush. You still get the sun. So it's it's it doesn't have anything to do with George, you know, Bush Senior never being compared to to Hitler. I'm sure it's just it's harder to search for it because he shares the same name as, as the next mm-hmm. president. Uh, so, okay, so Putin is also declaring all of his enemies are Nazis and so forth. And, you know, he doesn't like the government of Poroshenko. Oh, Poroshenko's a Nazi. He doesn't like uh, Zelensky's government. Ah, Zelensky's a Nazi. So, you know, that's not that uncommon. But what I think may have happened is they've started to believe it. So there's all sorts of people in Russia who think we're actually fighting Nazis in Ukraine. We have to fight this war in Ukraine because... You know, this Jewish guy who lost his relatives in the Holocaust is a Nazi, which is crazy. Doesn't make much but, sense. <laughs> well, it you know, what makes sense depends on what information you've been fed. Yeah. And if sure. you have a state where the state controls all the media and it's all propaganda all the time. I mean, imagine a whole country where people are only watching Fox News or only watching, you know, uh, ONN or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you know. People believe what they're told, and not everybody's paying that close attention to politics. And it's very difficult to get alternative um, information, you know, in the Russian provinces. I was about to say, sort of in today's um, New Zealand Herald, they were sort of talking about how maybe that tide might change um, if Putin actually has to start declaring, actually has to declare war in order to mobilize um, more forces or more troops from the Russian from the Russian populace. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Alexander? Well, I have read some interesting stories about, you know, what the Russian press has been like, you know, before the war happened, there's, there's apparently some Russian sort of talk show where they talk about politics. And before the war happened, they were all talking tough. Ah, oh, we'll take you, we'll take Kiev in four hours. You know, the, the, there's, there's no, no difficulty at all. Uh, you know, Ukraine is all corrupt and weak and the glorious Russian army will just, you know, achieve all of its aims instantaneously. And then two weeks later, uh, instead of four hours, they're saying things like, we'll have to stay in Kiev for 20 years. You know, it's, we, you know the occupation, we have to root out this evil root and branch and we need a long occupation. And so, the, you know, they've changed their tune pretty dramatically just in the last couple of weeks, apparently. Mm-hmm. So... Um, uh, it's interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see if, uh, you know, when when the bodies start returning home, when the economic sanctions really start to bite, if people will start to have second thoughts or not. Because presumably the, the war will be pretty expensive for Putin as well in order to maintain it for a long period. Well, I mean, I think if you say the country's at war, then it's possible to mobilize resources in an unexpected mm. way. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I've been talking to some people who say, well, the Russians just won't be able to afford the war for more than two weeks. And, you know, I think, where have I heard this before? Where have I heard this before? I know it's I've read it in, in descriptions of the First World War. Before the mm-hmm. First World War, people said, 
well, the European economies are so integrated, it'll be impossible for any European country to fight a war for more than a few months. And lo and behold, you know, the, everyone fought themselves, uh, fought themselves ragged over a period of several years. So I, mm-hmm. you know, Russia is a big, strong country with oil reserves and natural resources and so forth. I don't think Russia's going to lose the ability to fight a war anytime soon, mm-hmm. but uh, they, the Ukrainians are sure doing a lot better than, than anyone expected, it seems. So it's, uh, it's not clear what will happen militarily. But I think the, the thing to hope for is that there may, might be some political change in Russia. You know, if, if something were to happen to Putin, if there were to be a coup d'etat, who knows? I mean, there might be some change at the top. And then uh, the future of Russian policy would be, uh, you know, could change dramatically. <laughs> Up for grabs. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think part of the problem for Putin now is there's no way for him to withdraw without losing face. Mm, sure. I mean, uh, okay, this, this has really gone badly for him. You know, looking at this from Putin's point of view, this has really not worked out. But if he just pulls out, he looks weak. He can't afford to look weak. So, uh you know, some clever diplomat can find a way for Putin to withdraw without losing face. Uh, you know, he might seize that sort of opportunity. But the only thing I can think of that someone might offer Putin is, okay, you can keep Crimea, you can keep uh, Donetsk, Luhansk. And how do you get the Ukrainians to agree with that? The Ukrainians have, uh, as one journalist put it, the swagger of victory. You know, they're, hmm. they're doing really well. Why would they want to give up their country? And, and the rest of the world seems to be on their side. Well, it's, I think the Western Europe, the United States, and uh, you know, the so-called Western powers are very much on their side. I think mm. uh, China and India feel less enthusiastic sure. for the Ukrainian cause. Well, my prediction is you know, Chechnya too, sort of a long, drawn, brutal, horrible guerrilla war. Mm. Uh, right. So here's hoping that I'm wrong. We've um, come up with a bit of, of a tradition on this podcast of making bets about uh, when things are going to end, but uh, I wonder whether we shouldn't go down that track for a war. Yeah, maybe a little bit heavy, this one, for uh, making flippant bets. Yes, Yeah, exactly. well, it's not something to be flippant about. Um, no. I mean, it's just, was it yesterday, today, we found uh, news of these terrible atrocities. Mm. So it's, uh, it's not a yeah. thing to be flippant about. But uh, if if you want me to make a prediction, my prediction is long a long war rather than a short mm. war. Is so that here, months or is it years? I fear years. Wow. But let's let's hope that I'm wrong. Let's hope so. Roman, what are you going to tell us about? Well, it looks like I'm going to be speaking on a very a much lighter topic. I guess I'll start off first with just talking about the uh, multi-level marketing article I wrote, um, just with a profile on Mary Kay. When I've been interested in sort of multi-level marketing schemes for quite a while. And of course, because I watch a lot of YouTube videos, um, the multi-level marketing schemes that have a bit more of a higher profile are the MLMs that have a higher presence or higher visibility on social media. So that's your TikTok, your YouTube, um, Instagram, Instagram Reels. So people who are putting out, you know, little short videos that other creators can then snipe or copy and comment on and make another video on. And that can be disseminated. And it's a, and sort of a really great way to put out the same constant messages over and over again about why these multi-level marketing schemes aren't very good. <laughs> or that's, and that's a very mild way to put it. However, Avon 
which is no longer working in New Zealand, and Mary Kay, they're kind of your mothers and your grandmothers and your great grandmothers sort of MLM, which is very much based on that traditional party structure door-to-door catalog sales, um, which has kind of fallen out of favor with the younger mo- with the younger younger population um, who are going more for that um, buying offline, buying their makeup and everything from an influencer. So there's a much more of a seamlessness between the newer MLMs like Monet, Arbonne, doTERRA, Young Living, compared to the older ones. So with the article that I wrote, I was just looking, using Mary Kay as sort of a model to sort of just sort of introduce some of those basic concepts of how the multi-level marketing scheme works. So that's looking at the idea of front-loading which is where people buy a lot of the inventory first. And that sort of purchase is what counts towards your rank in the company. However, the only way you make any sort of profit, quote unquote, is if you can sell on that product to the consumer. And a lot of women don't. So you'll have website, websites like Pink Truth sharing stories upon stories about you know, women just spending hundreds and thousands of dollars on inventory that they can't sell. Yet they're getting these so-called ranks and bonuses saying, oh, I'm a $100,000 earner. It's like, no, that it's not quite true. You, and if you were lucky enough to recruit people, your team have sold about $100,000 worth of product. But to do so, maybe you spent about 50 grand trying to keep that rank and trying to sell that product. Hmm. You know, So it's not, it's not the money-making venture that you think it is. But what I hope to do over the next few weeks is just go through different MLMs that are operating in New Zealand, such as Arbonne, which is a favorite MLM of uh, Destiny Church. And if we, if you're following, of course, Voices for Freedom, a lot of them, as we keep on saying, are doTERRA reps. doTERRA is one of those, mo- those essential oil MLMs. doTERRA think- is one I hate. I really <laughs> don't like doTERRA. So please tear them a new one for me. Yeah, I'll try. I'll try. I mean, they can take, you know, they speak for themselves, really. We don't really need to do that much work. (laughs) Good Um, point. But again, you're looking at sort of more of those companies that focus on wellness. You know, the idea that, oh, here's this product, which is a little bit overpriced for what it is, but it's cheaper than going to a doctor or going to a hospital or paying for surgery or doing, Mm. you know, anything else to keep your health. health. They sell it as an investment in your health, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Where sort of Mary Kay and Avon are a bit more of that really expensive makeup product, which isn't really any better quality than what you can buy in a drugstore. And again, within people within my age demographic and younger, well, if you're going to spend that much money on makeup, you're going to spend it on, say, your MAC cosmetics or Smashbox, mm-hmm. or you're going to go to Mecca, you're going to go to stores like Sephora or Ulta and uh, buy your really nice cult influencer mm-hmm. makeup. And Mary Kay and Avon just weren't it. Now, just because and, those and, not- and I can imagine going to those sorts of stores, you're actually participating in the experience of being in that environment and then having that retail buying experience, which you're not getting at, at, if you're buying it off a off an email MLM representative, I suppose. Well, but at the same time, influencer marketing it, marketing is big, so a lot of people are buying um, mm. things that they haven't even had a chance to touch or see in person. That's why you have all these quote unquote hauls. Um, it's a very popular genre of video on YouTube where people buy, you know, all these internet company products such as Shein, which is a really cheap clothing manufacturer. You know, you can buy a whole wardrobe of fast fashion for less than $100 and they do a try on of stuff that they may wear once or twice. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's not necessarily the in-person shopping experience. I just think it's more of the cultural cachet that comes with that, with the product that you're buying. 
I would have expected uh, um, cosmetics to be a rather fashion-driven industry in which uh, each generation would not want to wear the products that their parents had worn. You know, I, I know that Mary Kay was a, you know, a thing that my mom would have. And so if my mom would have it, or if, you know, people I knew had it, I would expect the young persons would not want to have it just because they would want something, you know, not what their parents had. Mm. Um, that's a good point. But on the other hand, we also have these long running companies such as Chanel, L'Oreal, um, CoverGirl, not necessarily luxury, um, but these are companies that do that are that you know your grandmother and your mother may have spent a good amount of money on it. So a lot of the companies that last a lot longer have a bit more of that luxury image to it. Yeah. And I think those are companies that can last a little bit longer. Mm. Mary Kay did survive for a bit of time in New Zealand, but and it did sort of adjust its image a little bit. But ultimately, New Zealand is a very small market. You take a look in China, where you can have where they grew over hundreds of thousands, like I think a couple of hundred thousand people um, in a space of a couple of years, and that's actually quite significant growth, especially when you consider mm. the um, amount of regulatory restrictions that the Chinese government had. Um, but I think maybe in a way, a lot of those MLMs might be taking advantage of you know, well, hey, you're doing this illegal thing, you can't really report us because you're going to get in trouble too, and I think that sort of fear may keep a lot of people in the MLM in those countries. Mm. I think we're almost finished. Um, we do have Membership Corner. Hang on a minute. Aren't we forgetting our new project? N- well, the, the new project does fall in within Membership Corner because we're asking it. our members to do some stuff for us. That's what we're going to ah, do. Okay. Well, <laughs> sounds like a stretch to me, but all right, it's let's go for it. not a stretch at all. It's not. <laughs> um, but yes, okay. I will start off with our new project. I guess we're going to talk about the genesis of this project. As always, everything good starts with the newsletter. Um, We have some debates, some healthy debates within the committee about, you know, what we want to put in the newsletter. And uh, our member, Daniel Ryan, who some of you may be familiar with through other projects, sort of came up with an idea of doing sort of a this day in skeptical bullshit. And he sort of gave us an idea of two or three websites or blogs that were doing the same sort of project. For me, it sort of got my mind cooking. I'm doing something similar for the New Zealand skeptical history, you know, something different each day that we can share on the website or on the newsletter. And then I remembered that Mark sort of already had a very handy spreadsheet available from a previous project that he was doing. So if anything, I just needed his spreadsheet to have every day in the year already written out. And yeah, what we're doing is going through all of our archives, you know, other New Zealand sites just to find something that's happening every day of the year that's relevant to New Zealand skepticism. We don't really want to hear, or we're not going to include things like, oh, Sir Isaac Newton was born today, but maybe, well, we have included on the list, uh, you know, today was the day that Ken Ring made his prediction, or today was the day that Ray Comfort um, ate a banana with Kirk Cameron, things like that. You have something to say, Mark? I have lots to say. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I'm, I love this project and it, it is a lot of fun. Um, but I just wanted to ask first off, one of you two has done a really good job today of filling in some some extra dates. Which of you two little fairies has uh, sprinkled your magic dust over the spreadsheet? That'll be me. me. <laughs> oh, me. there we go. Why, Craig, I saw that you had the spreadsheet open today, so I thought it might have been you. <laughs> it's probably no. just uh, sitting at a, a tab on my <laughs> uh, web browser. It's all Bromwin. So, 
Mm. I think as of as of yesterday, once Bronwyn and I had been uh, adding some stuff, we were down to 328 days required. So we'd managed, what's that, about uh, 35 days, 40 days. And I think we're down to about 300 now. So only 300 two, two, dates. 291 to be exact. Thank you very much. Wow. <laughs> okay. What, one I've actually just realized I'm really worried about is can we find a skeptical event that happened in New Zealand on February the 29th? Well, if you look at the uh, spreadsheet, um, I did no. add something, that would, but we will probably have a very, again, a very healthy debate about that. <clears throat> but on that day, I believe it was 1924, intelligence tests were in, introduced into New Zealand. Okay. I'm, like IQ I, tests into New Zealand schools. I think I'm happy with that one. Yeah. That, yeah no. that, that does sound interesting. Uh, just as, as an aside, what, how, how long had IQ tests been around? Like, would you? Oh, good question. I think it was around the um, probably if not a little bit earlier than that. Then, hmm. Alexander, you've done some reading up mm-hmm. on IQ tests in the past. Uh, well, I read a terrific book uh, which had a chapter on IQ tests by Stephen Jay Gould, who uh, persuaded me that IQ tests were snake oil from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, I think it does fall under the um, the broader gambit of skeptical interest because it's a form of pseudoscience just like tea leaf reading or racial science or anything else. <laughs> and I, I tried in vain to convince you at a skeptics in the pub meeting that, yes, they may not be 100% accurate, but that doesn't mean they're totally useless. And I don't think I got anywhere with you, did I? Well, um, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think the book, Alexander, you were um, referring to is The Mismeasure of Man. Yes. Which also sort of goes into um, not just IQ tests, but also other sort of scam scam forms of um, attaching intelligence to um, race as well. Well, I think that's his main topic. Uh, he's mm-hmm. interested in uh, debunking quote unquote scientific racism as part of um, you know a contest, a conversation about race in the United States. There are people who uh, you know want to argue that um, you know if uh, people in America of African descent are disadvantaged, well, it's just because they're just not as clever as white people and. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at IQ scores, you do indeed find that white people do score better on IQ tests, but that's because white people have all sorts of cultural, social, financial advantages, and those things affect the uh, the ability to score well on an IQ test. I guess apart uh, from anything else, white people have written the IQ test, right? Yes. Well, there's the, the one of the one of the um, things I remember from the book very vividly is uh, apparently the wording of the question can 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 make a big difference. So, you know, the, a lot of IQ test questions are, you know, comparisons. So you might have something like, uh, you know, uh, chair is to sofa as, uh, you know, as a life raft is to boat or something like this. I mean, that's not a very good example, but it's off the top of my head. But the, the point is that if you change the word sofa to couch, the number of African-American kids who get the right answer changes dramatically. Now, Mm. I don't know what your ear says, but sofa and couch to me seem both very common words with the exact same meaning. And you could substitute one for the other and it wouldn't make a difference. But apparently in African-American English, that's not the case. And one of those words, I forget which one, is much easier for people to understand than the other uh, from that community. And, you know, I think that's a, that's the sort of thing that would be difficult to know in advance 
you know, if the words seem the same to you and you're not that familiar with uh, African-American vernacular English, you might not realize that that would have a big effect. I know that the uh, the company that was doing IQ tests in the in the 50s, which later uh, became the company that makes the SAT test. I know that they are aware of that sort of problem. And uh, SAT test questions are now uh, extensively vetted for these sorts of effects. So, you know, props, I guess, that people have become aware of that problem or trying to do something about it. But uh, it does make me pretty skeptical of uh, so-called intelligence testing. Do you think we have uh, many people who are members of Mensa? In the I skeptical was. community. Okay. I was once um, back in 2000, what, 2003, 2004, they were offering discount tests for about 15 bucks. So me and a couple of friends decided to waste a Saturday spending a couple hours doing this test. It was interesting because some of the tests that they had were very much like the same activities that you would see some teachers give their school kids um, when they were bored. Like, you know, those little images that sort of say, down and it's under a line and that'll be oh down under something like that mm, um those right. little Im- those little image puzzles um you have pattern recognition but going back to what alexander was saying in terms of the vocabulary work um they have those again x is to y one is a two then therefore what is these two other things and it would you have words like the atomizer <laughs> now i re- i've read a lot of sort of mid-century mid-20th century fiction I had an idea that they were talking about a perfume bottle. Um, okay. Yep. But, you know, if you didn't have that sort of vocabulary or you didn't have that sort of experience reading those books, you wouldn't know what it was. So I think, yeah, and so much of intelligence testing is very much based on your pre-knowledge, not exactly on, say, a general skill base. And also on, on knowledge that would be very culturally dependent. Exactly. One of the questions from, uh, so the U.S. Army used to give IQ tests to uh to soldiers to try and identify which soldiers might make better officer material. And uh, so one of the questions devised for that test involved, um, you know, a picture of a house and you had to, had to draw on what was missing from the picture. And the correct answer was smoke out of the chimney. But uh, some people who took the test from uh, who were of Italian ancestry looked at the house and drew a cross on the front of the house because in Sicily, apparently, no house is complete without the cross on the front. <laughs> so if you're from Sicily, it's obvious what's missing. The cross on the front is what's missing. Mm. So, I mean, that's very uh, culture dependent. That's mm-hmm. th- I don't think that's that's not measuring anything that you would be comfortable describing as intelligence, I think, but rather measuring presum- cultural difference. Yeah. And presumably people in sort of lower socioeconomic um, backgrounds might not have the concept of a, a sort of a freestanding house and, where they could identify that this is the thing that's missing from it, that you might well grow up in apartment buildings or something like that, I guess. Well, in any event, there are lots of problems with IQ tests. Okay. So, and this is why I think uh, Bronwyn has done really well. If uh, February 19th is the day uh, that IQ tests were first introduced into New Zealand, then that is uh, February 19th or 29th, bingo. Uh, hmm. It's good for, the, good for your uh, spreadsheet. Thank yeah. you. Well done. I agree. I, I agree that it's good to be skeptical about IQ tests. I don't agree that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> anyway, that was quite a detour. 
Yeah, that yeah. was a long detour, but let's get back on track. So the second thing I wanted to say was that while we were recording this podcast, I quickly tapped away on my keyboard and there is now a form that people can fill in. If anybody listening to the podcast can think of a skeptical event in New Zealand history that we should be featuring, if you go to skeptics.nz slash history, there will be an embedded Google form that asks three simple questions. First question, what was the date? Second question, what happened? And third question, do you have any supporting URLs or other sources we can read? So fill in those three, click submit, It'll end up in a spreadsheet, and then we can check it over and add it to our spreadsheet. And hopefully, once you all swarm onto this form, we'll have the year completed in no time. Now, related to that, because we've been sort of gradually trolling through our back catalog of um, skeptical journals from as far back as sort of the um, mid to late 80s, we found that there are still some gaps in our record. So what I'll do on our show notes, I'll list the missing issues we would be in we would be so grateful if we could have um high quality scans of those journal articles or if you're feeling super generous and want to clear out some space in your personal archives um send them our way we would be happy to have them yeah mark would be happy to have them quite possibly just send them our way because honestly i've scanned in a lot of our old journal issues and it is a thankless task so if you just want to send them in to us, I can scan them in and send them back to you afterwards. Uh, I don't expect you to do what I do, which is stupid and horrible uh, <laughs> and thankless. Nobody thanked me for it at the time and nobody thanked me for it since, but I did I'm it anyway. You for, I'm thanking you for it now, Mark. I really thank appreciate you. it. It made my job thank easier. Oh, oh, Alexander, thank me as well. Come on, thank me quickly. Yeah, I, I feel if I thank you, it'll de- destroy your ability to say how thankless the job was. <laughs> I've been preserving <laughs> history. You're a historian. I've preserved history. Come on, give me some thanks. <laughs> thank you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Now I feel worthy. Thank you. Cool. Awesome. Yes. So uh, skeptics.nz slash history. If you can think of anything like a big cat sighting, mower sighting, UFO sighting, um, anything like that, even stuff that isn't sightings. It'd be great to have more than one thing on a single day, wouldn't it? Yeah, we'd love that, actually. I think we already have some dates with more than one thing. We do. We do. But, you know, it's always nice to have, you know, two, maybe even three options per day. As as I pointed out in the committee meeting, maybe we'll notice a pattern. (laughs) God has been making things happen on certain dates that clump into patterns. We might actually do, and the pattern might be that most journalists don't work on the weekend, and so things aren't written up until weekdays. (laughs) The the only real pattern is that you guys keep on having your conference around the same month every year. That's the only pattern. (laughs) Oh, that's changed. Um, That was, I think, August, August, September. Yeah. And then we, because it was in the Constitution that it had to be August, September, and then we uh, we changed just to say once a year, which was much nicer. Or no, it was the AGM. Sorry, the AGM was tied down, and we've always had the AGM with the conference. Well, I look forward to seeing the calendar fill up. Skeptics.nz slash history. I in in one of my cupboards behind me that you can see, I've actually got a stack of old uh, skeptical material. I might have to go through it. I might actually have some of those old journals that we're looking for. Oh, exciting! Hmm. You never know. Get them scanned. 
get Mark to scan them. Yes, yeah, I'll just post <laughs> and them don't that. thank him for it at all. <laughs> I've got my think, own grave here, haven't I? But I yeah. think we should just move yes, on uh, and just sort of uh, start tying up the podcast. Um, just sure. a couple other announcements. Um, please join us. Um, we're always looking for new, fresh blood. Um, we'd always love to hear if you're interested in running a skeptics in the pub anywhere in New Zealand. Um, we'd be happy to advertise it for free. Um, we'd love supporting skeptical initiatives and skeptical events. So, you know, let us know if there's something interesting happening in your area. In fact, um, we've been told, I've been notified that uh, Dunedin Skeptics in the Pub is happening once a month. So we don't have a date at the moment for their next meeting. But um, once we know, we will advertise the meetup page and a notification on our um, New Zealand Skeptics page, on the Facebook page, I should say. Oh, actually, and joining us as well as, I guess, joining the society, um, mm -hmm. if anybody is interested in joining the committee, we do actually have some spaces at the moment. And um, generally what we're looking for at the moment is people that aren't old white men because we have <laughs> enough of us. So if anybody out there isn't an old white man and would like to join our committee, we'd love to hear from you. Was uh, that too blunt? <laughs> not blunt enough. Um, <laughs> but that also does remind me that um, we're having our fortnightly Skeptics in the Pub meeting at uh, 2 Gray Street inside the Intercontinental Hotel at the Lobby Lounge starting at 6 o'clock and going till uh, when we all get tired and want to go home. So come join us for some good chats um, some decent beverages and pretty good food. Are we done? We're done. I think that's it. Unless you've got anything else to say, Alexander. I'm good. Yay. Thanks mm -hmm. for inviting me onto your podcast. Glad Thanks for coming along. And yeah. uh, we, we hope to receive more articles from you in the future and be able to publish them. Hint, hint. Hint, hint. <laughs> Let's see what happens. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. You have been listening to the YNR podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can uh, find us on Twitter at YNR pod, or you can just send us an email to news at skeptics.nz. And we will see you all next time. Bye.